America's number one show on pop culture and politics. This is the Michael Medved Show. And another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth. Associate producer Greg Tomlin sitting alongside Washington Policy Center's Dave Bowes today in for your cultural crusader. He will be back tomorrow. The news today, FTX founder Sam Bankman-Fried arrested in the Bahamas Monday evening following receipt of a formal notification from the U.S. that had filed criminal charges against the fallen crypto billionaire. Here to speak with us about this topic, uh, always a welcome guest here on the program, Andy McCarthy of the National Review. He's got a new piece entitled The Curious Timing of Sam Bankman-Fried's Arrest. Uh, he begins this piece by saying, I confess to being perplexed by the arrest of Bankman-Fried. I'm not perplexed by the fact of it, but uh, what questions are you asking in light of Bankman-Fried taken into custody last night, Andy McCarthy? And thank you for joining us. Well, thank you, Jen, for having me. Um, I, what I'm curious about is it seems to me that any federal prosecutor who had the uh, – windfall of having a suspect who is about to be charged uh, agree to testify under oath for hours under a lot of which probably would have been hostile questioning. Um, that would be like manna from heaven. And uh, that's why any competent defense lawyer would plead with the client not to do it uh, because you just, uh, you don't, uh, even if you're representing uh, as a defense lawyer, somebody that you believe is not guilty, uh, you still want to see what the government is going to charge, what its theory is, what its evidence is before uh, the client makes statements that the government can uh, try to build into its case. So it just it, it's it's a natural that uh, if the Justice Department could have had that happen today, which it was scheduled to was scheduled to happen, uh, you would think that they would uh, they would have moved heaven and earth to to do everything they could to make sure it happened, and instead they picked uh, last night on the uh, e the eve of when this testimony was supposed to take place uh, to pull the trigger on their um, arrest. Uh, you know, they got a, a, a arrest warrant uh, based on a sealed indictment that was filed in the Southern District of New York and executed it uh, around 6 o'clock in the Bahamas time uh, last evening, which, of course, aborted the testimony. And I just think it's odd that they did that. What are the potential, um, the possible answers to that? I mean, I can think of incompetence, um, and I can think of wanting to hide something. Uh, and those are my only two. I'm wondering, do you have a list of possible reasons why they would stop a guy from giving all these uh, potentially incriminating answers when they, you know, they know where he is, they know that it's not, he's, as you point out in your column, he's not going to be a hard guy to find, not going to be a hard guy to arrest. So what's, what are the potential reasons why this testimony would be stopped? Well, I'm glad you mentioned incompetence first, because I, I worked in the government for 25 years and that can never be dismissed as a, <laughs> as a possibility. So it's, that, that's the first box to, to check. Um, I'm, uh, in this instance, at least, um, more cynical than that. And I think that probably what went on here is uh, a big part of the alleged fraud against Bankman-Fried is the millions of dollars that he diverted from 
uh, clients of FTX uh, diverted to this other corporate entity called Alameda that he controlled and then used that as his piggy bank to do, among other things, political contributions, uh, which obviously, uh, you know, he was hoping to uh, promote the idea of regulating cryptocurrencies in a way that would have been helpful to his business. But uh, in this past cycle, he was identified publicly as, as being, I think, number two only to um, George Soros as the top Democratic contributor in this cycle with about $40 million. So the Democrats on the committee uh, would have had to endure hours of Republicans spotlighting the fact that the money that was stolen from Bankman Freed's uh, clients uh, and customers ended up in the coffers of these politicians. I should quickly underscore that Bankman Freed himself says that he was an uh, equal opportunity um, donor to politicians that he gave to both Republicans and Democrats. He says he gave almost as much to Republicans. The difference is that he gave uh, mostly dark money to Republicans because he didn't want to deal with the media Democrat complex complaining that he was contributing to Republicans. But he says that he gave a lot of money to Republicans and, and nearly as much to them as he gave to Democrats. But I still think Democrats would not have enjoyed that part of the hearing today. Well, and does his whole, oh, I contributed to Republicans, but I just did it with dark money, does that pass the smell test for you? And d during this ongoing investigation, is there any way to trace any potential contributions to Republicans, or will we never know? Yeah, well, I think it totally makes sense to me. It totally uh, you know, passes the smell test because— Think about what this guy was trying to do, right? He he made himself very unpopular uh, with people in the cryptocurrency sector because, you know, they want to evade or uh, be insulated from government regulation. In fact, you know, the whole idea behind uh, crypto and its use of the blockchain technology is that it, it frees people from a lot of prying by the government and a lot of regulation. It should also, by the way, free people from having to deal with people like uh, Sam Bankman-Fried, because the whole idea is you shouldn't need middlemen and exchanges and the like. Um, but I, I have no doubt that what, what this guy was trying to accomplish was to get a favorable regulatory environment that would help his business and hurt his competitors. We see that kind of thing again and again and again. Um, from from a lot of these characters. So I, that doesn't surprise me at all. And I think they have identified at least some of the, you know, to say that someone gives dark money, I don't want to suggest that there's anything illegal about that. What I mean by that is that's the term they use for giving money that's not as um, publicly transparent as some of the things that the campaign finance laws require public reporting on. So, for example, if you give to candidates, uh, that has to be reported. If you give to some political action committees, often that doesn't have to be reported, and there aren't caps on how much you can give. And evidently what he did was, you know, that was the route that he dealt with Republicans on, at least by his own account. Isn't there a past I, – and I, I thought I read a column in National Review recently, and, and forgive me if you're not familiar, but – um, I recall there was another kind of, of uh, big scandal of this kind, not cryptocurrency, but, you know, yeah. big money people 
given a bunch of money to the politicians, and then when it came to punishment time, you know, there was political influence, and they, they didn't seem to you – know, let me put it this way. The book wasn't thrown at them. They didn't get the same kind of justice one would expect uh, with the punishment fitting the crime. Instead, it seemed like they were treated with, with soft gloves. Could that be part of the reason for this this money, maybe sense that the cards were falling? And do you know of a, of a circumstance where this kind of, of – um, of dealing has has happened where people end up being caught in their crimes and then getting a softer uh, softer treatment because they're politically connected. Well, those things happen. Uh, you know, I also think there's uh, complexities with this regulatory environment too, which we can talk about uh, more if you want. But um, you know, the legal status of cryptocurrencies is not on a solid foundation so that you can say that they're absolutely securities or they're absolutely commodities that are clearly regulated under federal law. I think that the thing about this case is it's it's a pretty straightforward fraud. Andy McCarthy of the National Review, a senior fellow there, author of the book Ball of Collusion, The Plot to Rig an Election and Destroy a Presidency. Please go check that out. Uh, Might you be able to stick with us for one more segment on the other side of this break? Yeah, sure. Appreciate the conversation. We'll be right back on The Michael Medved Show. Greg Tomlin and Dave Bose sitting in. I'm, of course, deeply honored to receive The Michael Medved Show. It's the Michael Medved Show, associate producer Greg Tomlin and Dave Bowes sitting in today. Uh, Pleased to be joined for one more segment uh, with Andy McCarthy of the National Review. He's got a piece out right now, The Curious Timing of Sam Bankman-Fried's Arrest. Uh, Mr. McCarthy, your general impressions of SBF, as he's come to be known, uh, and surely we'll learn more as the investigation and our prosecution continues here but you know, he went on a media blitz like a month ago and was ubiquitous. It was on CNBC. I think he may have given an interview to George Stephanopoulos. And I just thought this might be an opportune time to keep your mouth shut if I was SBF. Nonetheless, no, nope, he was an open book and was talking uh, ad nauseum. Do you get the impression that he was just an entrepreneur in over his head, ignorant, naive, or the flip? Alternately, an evil billionaire genius filled with ill will and intent trying to get away with a massive crime here. What What do you think just on its surface? Well, you know, it, it, the, the truth is usually someplace in the middle, right? So, um, you know, he strikes me as a young guy who was in a hurry um, and, you know, he thinks he is the smartest guy in every room he was ever in. His parents um, are notable lawyers who were um, Stanford Law School academics. So you would think that people were in his ear telling him, you know, you're committing legal suicide by running around uh, speaking when you're the subject of an investigation. But, you know, he seems like he was one of these young guys who felt like he was invincible. You know, suddenly he was sitting on what he said was $32 billion. Um it looks like if the government's allegations are correct, that there were a lot of shenanigans that went on, uh, which will make it very difficult for him to try to establish his defense that he didn't intend to commit fraud. And when I hear him say that he didn't intend to commit fraud, although he acknowledges that uh, you know people lost their shirts and their life savings here, 
what I get the sense of is he, he's probably kind of in the position of Bernie Madoff in the sense that, like, you know, Madoff didn't intend for his victims to lose all their money. He always thought that somewhere along the line, um, you know, he was going to hit a winner and, um, you know, generate enough revenue that he could make people whole. But that doesn't mean that he didn't understand completely that what he was doing was uh, was dishonest and fraudulent. So, you know, if what he's saying is like, it, I had my best intentions where I were gonna I was gonna figure this out. I was gonna get a big windfall and nobody was gonna lose any money. On some human level, he may have believed that, but that's that's really not a defense to fraud. Do you get the sense that um, you, you mentioned that he's, he's got his two parents there, lawyers? He, you know, obviously he hasn't been taking any legal advice because. You know, it's obvious that one would shut up at this point. Um, and the whole point of your column is that the more he talks, the more a prosecutor is going to be happy about it. Um, seems like a pretty basic understanding. This young guy, he might be uh, egotistical, but he, he's not stupid. Um, so is, do you have any theories as to why a, 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 a um, an accused individual like this would keep talking? You know, I, I mean – Mm-hmm. Have you seen that before? Yeah, I, what, what's what's the motive of there? Uh, I have seen uh, low these many decades, um, many many times where somebody who was smart enough to give another person excellent advice rarely um, follows the advice himself <laughs> or herself. Um, we're just not good at um, being objective about our own situation. And he strikes me as the kind of a guy who, you know, just thinks he was smart enough to talk his way out of it. And he's probably smart enough that if somebody else suggested that as a strategy, he'd look at the guy and say, what are you, crazy? But um, with he himself, he thought that, you know, some people just think they can, they're so smart that they can talk their way out of anything. And, and look, for this guy, at, in his late 20s, he had talked his way into $32 billion, or at least on paper, right? So there, there probably was a, a sense of invincibility uh, out of all that. But, you know, look, at this point, we're, we're doing, um, you know, dime store uh, psychoanalysis. Uh-huh. I think that, you know, the, the important thing is, um, you know, whatever he says he intended, I, I just don't think, you know, given what the government's proof is, the way it's laid it out, and I assume they wouldn't put the stuff in the indictment that they put unless they were pretty confident they could prove it. And I'm talking in particular about the manipulation of the bookkeeping. Uh, it's going to be very hard for him to establish that he didn't know what was he didn't know what was going on, or that he didn't intend to take people's money. Were you surprised to learn? I don't know if you watched any of the hearing today uh, with uh, the new CEO. But he talked about how FTX was using QuickBooks for all their bookkeeping, and people were taken a little aback by that. Yeah, well, you know, look, I think John Ray, who is the new CEO, and I think he was the guy who was brought in to do the cleanup when Enron imploded, if I'm yeah, right. remembering right. But but um, so he's got, you know, I'm, and I don't mean to suggest that anything he said was untrue. We don't, you know, we'll have to see. If he testifies in a trial— He'll get cross-examined by lawyers for the defense, and then you know we'll we'll see. But um, I, I would just point out that he has a couple of motives that are worth taking into account. One is he's the new broom that sweeps clean, right? So he's got a motive to blame 
everything that could conceivably be wrong with FTX on the former management, right? So that, um, you know, going forward, he wants to have as clean a slate as he can possibly have as he sorts this mess out. Uh, And secondly, he's got a fiduciary obligation to to the company to try to put things in as best a light as he can put it in honestly. And obviously, from FTX's standpoint as a corporate entity, it's better if people looked at this as negligence than, you know, actionable fraud. Based on your political and legal experience, where do you see this hitting uh, cryptocurrency? I mean, how, how do you see this changing anything about the yeah, growth, I think, growth of that? Yeah, to me, that's the most important issue here because the the uh, the Democrats and some Republicans are very hot to regulate uh, cryptocurrency. They think it's terrible that it evades a lot of regulation. And I would just stress that I don't think there's anything about this fraud case that we've seen so far that's unique to crypto. In other words, this is just a standard run-of-the-mill fraud, which is why the Justice Department, under laws that have long been in existence, within four weeks is able to bring an indictment that could put this guy in jail for the rest of his life. So to the extent they come out and say, gee, you know, the regulation here is so porous. Look what happened. You know, they have plenty of laws to to deal with this. Uh, And this is a pretty standard fair fraud. It happens to have been in the context of cryptocurrency, but it could have been in any kind of uh, assets. It's just a diversion of client investment to the to the uses of the person it was invested with. Andy McCarthy, thank you so much for being generous with your time here on The Michael Medved Show. Go check out his piece on National Review, The Curious Timing of Sam Bankman-Fried's Arrest. Coming up, we're going to be talking about the 10 worst Christmas movies of all time. You won't believe what is number one. Greg Tomlin and Dave Bose sitting in for your cultural crusader. We will be right back. The Michael Medved Show. All across America. This is The Michael Medved Show. It's not Nat King Cole. Whose rendition of uh, the Christmas song is this, Jeremy? What you, what's your best guess, Dave? I'm not a musician. I mean, I'm going to guess It's not Bob Dylan. It's, oh, the Hootie and the Blowfish guy. That was my second yeah. guess. Yeah, of course it was. Yeah, sure. How apropos. I once wished Hootie and the Blowfish well. There's a few musical guests I've met over the years where they were very, very popular, and I was in an elevator with them at a different place that I worked. And um, I was not aware of their popularity. So I remember I met one of the guys from there, the head guy, singer, and he was saying, I said, you headed to the radio station? Yeah, I'm a singer. You know, and he said his name. I can't remember what it is now. And I said, oh, well, good luck to you. I hope you do well. And he was like, oh, I've, I've been doing fine. And then the elevator opens, and it was kind of like um, the Dave. It happened with was Dave Matthews. Same thing. I was on the elevator with that guy, too. Same. He's a Seattleite. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was a weird thing, because, um, and it was embarrassing each time, because I thought, well, turns out they're doing better than me than I am. <laughs> so good for them. Well, this leads us into a perfect segue. IMDb, the Internet Movie Database, has released its list of 10 worst Christmas movies of all time. It's not one of the worst, but one that we just watched the other night was National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. My wife grew up with it, uh, adoring that film. 
I made a dad Christmas edit for my kids so they could watch it without any of the PG-13 rated st- sexual references. What are these? Take them out. I don't need my nine-year-old son seeing any of that stuff. There's some swearing in there, too, that's oh, jarring if you're, there's if you're an used F-bomb. to watching it on cable. Yeah. Okay. And you're you're like with your family, like, oh, yeah, that's a great movie. Then you get the DVD to, to watch Here's- it at home whenever you want, and suddenly you're like... Whoa! Uh, Here's one of my big questions as a modern dad, because my wife Kendra had remembered watching that movie multiple times on network TV where it's edited to like rated G. Right. Right. Where do you do that nowadays? There, there's nothing that's filtered out on any streaming services. I know clean flicks used to be a thing, but it's not as easy as just turning on the TV and it's edited for you so you can watch it with your whole family. I experienced so many rated R movies and PG-13 movies that were edited for television, but that was my film education back in the day. And, and my dad, dad didn't have to worry about any expletives being thrown out or things like that. We were talking about TikTok earlier, you know, and the, and the possible Chinese uh, communist government influence on TikTok. And they send the TikTok version they send here to our kids is meant to undermine them uh, and their intelligence over the long run, you know, undermine their attention spans and everything. Whereas the one, the TikTok version they send to their own kids, there's an automatic cutoff switch for how long they can watch and everything. Well, you think about what Hollywood does with these movies. When that Angel Videos or Angel Studios or whatever their name was, when they used to cut sure. those video, video Angel, I forget. But they had, they would cut the movies, get the profanity out, nudity out, and other things that were objectionable to parents. And um, and, and then they were just hounded. I mean, it was like, oh, you're, you're assaulting the artistic the art- integrity. <laughs> I mean, unbelievable. The same artist, by the way, had no problem cashing in when the when the network television or the airlines would cut the the films so that people could watch them there. And and there's so many parents that want that. I mean, I would totally buy that version of the DVD rather than the full one because that's what, the one I'd want for my family. But you can't do it, which I find bogus. I just totally, especially on these Christmas movies. You're like, wh- you know, who thought the f bomb in the Christmas movie was a good idea? Unless it's bad Santa or something, where you're obviously not going to show it to your kids unless you're by definition, you know, not taking parenting all that all that all that seriously. And so. I want to go off on a tangent for just a moment, and I promise we'll get back to the list of 10 worst Christmas movies. Uh, but what I'm finding the dynamic that's taking place with me as a father now is I'm remembering things I saw in movies that greatly disturbed me and gave me nightmares for years and purposefully hiding those movies or scenes from my kids. And one of them is in a Christmas movie when uh, all those boys force that kid to put his tongue on the frozen pole. They didn't force him, though. He did it himself. They triple-dog dared him. That's what they did. That was just a dumb move on his part. That freaked me out for years, though. That image was indelible. I could not get it out of my head as a young lad, and it just scared me. So every time we're watching that movie as a family, I fast-forward. My kids have no idea what happens to that kid's tongue. (laughs) (laughs) I had nightmares over the... When I was a little boy, I remember the, um, you know, the stop-motion movies with Rudolph the Red-Nosed oh, Reindeer, course. and one of them, the Abominable Snowman comes out, and I thought he was scary as all get out, you know? Oh, yeah. I was showing my kids that, and they're like, <laughs> you know, I mean, they're they're four, five, three, and they're like, eh, kind of scary, but not a big deal. Well, and back in the day, stop motion animation, I think, was still kind of in its infancy, relatively, and so now when you go back and watch Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, it looks like there's like a glitch in your television set with how clumsy he walks out, so so it's almost scarier, because you're like, why is he moving that way, Mommy? You know, it doesn't look natural. You just say, uh, that's because he's possessed, Sally. (laughs) Anyway, good stuff. Um, 
those actually rank among the better <laughs> Christmas movies to me because they're. I know they're obnoxious. The songs are a bit hard to take as a parent now because not Rudolph, but some of those kind of spin-off stop motion movies. I, I now realize why my dad didn't want me to necessarily watch them all the time as a kid. You know, even though that was back the when earworms, you, had, you yeah. had to watch them. Well, right. I still think you have to watch him. I am a sucker for a great holiday special, whether that be Charlie Brown, Die Hard, Rudolph. Oh, let's not have this debate. Um, there's a the Chipmunks one still holds too. up to a degree. <laughs> Die Hard Two is in the snow. Does it take place at Christmas? Yeah, too? it's also Christmas. Oh, Die Hard please. One and Two are Christmas films. Oh, Die gosh. Hard Three, no. Die Hard Four, Fourth of July film. And there's another one I'm forget. The Garfield Christmas special is okay. Peanuts Any Christmas. kind of. Any kind of connective tissue between generations, I think, is worth preserving. And I love being able to share that with my kids and my parents who watched it when they were young as well. So 10 worst Christmas movies ranked by the Internet Movie Database. Coming in at number 10, uh, Dave, if you want to do a drum roll here, I wouldn't be opposed to it. But there's a film called Christmas with the Cranks starring uh, Tim Allen. And who is that? Jamie Lee Jamie Curtis. Lee Curtis. Yep. I, I never saw it. I remember <laughs> so. when it came out. I I tried watching it, couldn't, uh, and and I just thought, well, that one's going in the never watching file. Deck the Halls comes in at number nine with yeah. Danny DeVito and Matthew Broderick. That's another one. Got five minutes in and said, this is awful. Don't uh, they try to have solid like, actors? Bad content. They compete with Christmas decorations and lights, trying to win. Basically, something. somebody said, okay, we got a title, Deck the Halls. What are we gonna do with it? I know, <laughs> I know. They're really they're they're having a decoration contest because everybody knows neighborhoods get really competitive. Do they? Do, do those ever result in violence? I mean, it looks like most neighborhoods when they get competitive, it results in more houses lighting up and they have little bins for the food bank. You know, number eight on the list, 1989 film Elves. It looks creepy. One of my problems with these lists is a lot of these movies are very obscure and they weren't fair. That one's about a demonic Nazi elf. So just any elf. You're putting that in your best of category. I I never not only have I not seen that one, but I have never even heard of it, which is to make my point. Number seven on the list is Jack Frost Two: Revenge of the Mutant Killer Snowman. Yeah, that one. A lot of people rush out to see that film. Yeah, I do remember the Jack Frost films. Um, I think the American Pie gal had her, um, uh, Shannon Elizabeth or whatever her name was, had her debut in Jack Frost 1. Jack Frost 2 takes place in the Caribbean, which is rare for a snowman. You know, I mean, Olaf had nothing on this guy. Serial killer turned snowman uh, as awful as it sounds. Number six is. And by the way, confusing because there's also a Michael (laughs) Keaton movie named Jack Frost. That's a family film, not at all similar. Nerd alert. Yeah. Elf Man is number six, uh, released in 2012. And then the rest of the pages of the story bad. got yeah. cut off for me. So can you do number five? Sure. A Christmas Story 2, which I think is wrong. I mean, it's, Is it's, that the one that just came out? No. Christmas Story 2 that just came out for HBO Max is... Um, it's it's a Christmas a Christmas story Christmas story I think or something, but Christmas story two they try to recreate all these characters Ralphie's there and but it's a different actor playing him, and he they all end up playing caricatures of themselves. So the content of the movie in this case he wants a car because he's in love with this girl and he wants a car. The content isn't all that bad, but everybody is it's like they have the dad is played by Daniel Stern this time from the Home Alone movies and and City Slickers. You know, he's he's trying to he's using the same lines as the original actor, but he doesn't capture any of the essence of the original uh, cast. And Ralphie's always got the goofish grin on his face. So it's just 
It's just bad. Uh, okay, but real, tried. real quickly, breeze through four, three, and two here Santa on the worst. Santa has a bad show. reputation. Movie nobody ever heard of. The strange fun of Santa Claus conquers the Martians. Everyone's heard of it. Medved nobody can has talk a, about that film. Yeah, most yeah. people have not been able to watch it all. I doubt even Medved has, even if he says so. And number two is the Star Wars Holiday Special. It is painfully bad, but as a kid, I loved it. And then later, I saw part of it and realized just how bad it was. What's number one? Maybe we'll hold it for the other side of the okay, break. we'll do that. Ultimate tease, Greg Tomlin and Dave Bowes in for your cultural crusader. We'll be right back. Oh, associate producer Greg Tomlin sitting alongside Dave Bowes for one final segment. Dave, it's been a pleasure chatting it up with you for the Always last great. three hours. Always. And you only made it through two of your 16-ounce Diet Cokes. Well, I just keep them as spares, you know, because you never know. You never know, you need them, you know what turns it's going to take here as we broadcast. We're getting to the end of this list here, the 10 worst Christmas movies at all time. One of the kids was awake in the middle of the night, too, so it's it's a constant caffeine IV. Have one in your back yeah. pocket at all times. Dave, uh, the anticipation is killing me. What did they say is the worst Christmas film at all time, and is it a good choice? Let's find out. IMDb ranks as the worst Christmas movie of all time. Kirk Cameron saving Christmas. Oh, come on. That's sorry. I'm serious. Seriously? Yeah. It, uh, the film, they say it was rated 1.3 on IMDb about faith and how Christmas should be centered on Christianity. Well, there you go. Ding, ding, ding. Than, I know, I know. The movie's about faith. It must be the worst thing Zero ever. Zero percent rating on Rotten Tomatoes. And I thought, look, Kirk Cameron's trying to make a positive message here. He wasn't trying to make Casablanca. He's trying to talk about the real reason for the season. Exactly, and it's it's so it's, I'm sure the people who watched it liked it, right? It's not going to be for everybody, but I found it. You're telling me that Kirk that uh, Kirk Cameron's Saving Christmas is supposed to be worse than the demonic uh, elf Nazi uh, <laughs> Christmas movie? Right away, I know that if you've if you've ranked Cameron's movie below that there's a bias that you're not seeing in yourself and your reviewers. It makes so. me want to go out and watch it just because they put it exactly. at number one. So, just to spite them, I'll yeah, go see it. It's, uh, it's lame. I, I mean, there's a lot of Christmas movies out there that might be more adult-themed. This one, it's, it's supposed to be about positive uplift and faith. <laughs> right, right, or no, right away you know that they just, you know, it's, it's going to go against grain. It's like his sister trying to talk about her new company. And she says, yeah, I'm really focused on making uh, traditional family movies. It's like, What? But she's got to be stopped. She's, it's like, well, wait a second. Is there some, you know, is there a lack of uh, other alternative views out there? Is there a lack of filmmakers willing to tell other stories? No. She's trying to tell a specific block of stories. Good for her. Jeez. And just real briefly, best of all time holiday people movies. people by the way. I sure. hate it when people act like the only You're way you can yet. relate Keep to You're not done yet. Keep going. It. Sorry. It's like <laughs> the only way they can relate to a movie is if, you know, you see yourself in it or you see... And that is simply not true, and you can see it by the films that people have loved over hmm. the test of time. There you so, go. Anyway, go ahead. My second Sorry. favorite Christmas film of all time is A Christmas Story. <laughs> and number one, uh, objectively speaking, it, it's A Wonderful Life. Every Christmas Eve, I put it on as my wife and I wrap presents, and it never fails. It, it's, a, it's a film that gets better with age. It's like a fine wine, and I tear up at multiple parts of the movie. The scene that always gets me, Dave, is when he makes eye contact with his wife-to-be in a gymnasium, and they're about to dance together. The acting is just unbelievable, and their facial expressions, the way they communicate without saying a word, 
just pulls at my heartstrings every time. Jimmy Stewart was just a master of his craft and a stand-up human being. And he plays the part of a teenager uh, all the way to a 40-year-old, 45-year-old yeah. guy. And uh, he, does, he does a great job of it. Um, uh, uh, Donna Reed does a great job the whole time. Where's it? Yeah, Donna Reed. And uh, no, maybe I'm getting that wrong. I can't remember. Anyway. Um, Do you agree with the, my n- number one pick? The first time I saw that movie was my my parents had been divorced, and I was uh, going off to the first time it was a Christmas where there was a separation, you know. And I was by myself at my grandma's house. It was late at night, turned on the cable TV, and I was flipping through looking for a Christmas movie or a cartoon. And I saw I, I was a big Jimmy Stewart fan from Westerns, and that's why I landed on that. So I'd missed the opening, you know, the heavens kind of talking to each other with the angels. Right. So I missed the opening, and later when I saw it again, I was like, wait, what? Because this is before VCR, and, you know, you, you had to go buy a DVD if you wanted something. And um, and I like you. I wept in the in the movie. I felt like it was a really powerful, important movie. One still, of the highlights of my radio career behind the scenes is I got a guest host uh, on this show a few years ago when Michael was out, and I had the opportunity to speak with the little girl who was in that film who says, "Every time a bell rings, an angel gets its wings." Some of the most fun I've ever. I had tell my kids somebody. every time a kid disobeys, a daddy gets a gray hair. <laughs> And true, that's true. Know, and they're like, because they're always looking at my beard, like, "What? Well, your beard's white like Santa Claus. You're getting old." It's like, no, it's more kids have disobeyed. So every time, it just, it just disappears. Last story of the day here that we want to mention. I've teased it uh, for a number of segments. Scientists announced today that they have, for the first time, produced more energy in a fusion reaction than was used to ignite it. <laughs> what does that mean? Well, apparently, it's a major breakthrough in the decades-long quest to harness. The process that powers the sun, Dave. Are you following me so far? It's super cool. Mm -hmm. Proponents of fusion hope that it could one day offer nearly limitless carbon-free energy and displace fossil fuels and other traditional energy sources. Uh, Energy Secretary Jennifer Granholm talked about this today, clip 15. Today we're here to talk about fusion, combining two particles into one. Last week at the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory in California, scientists at the National Ignition Facility achieved fusion ignition. And that is creating more energy from fusion reactions than the energy used to start the process. It's the first time it has ever been done in a laboratory anywhere in the world. Simply put, this is one of the most impressive scientific feats of the 21st century. So what we're going to do is we're going to have, we've got a lot of uh, interns from the top universities of China who have volunteered (laughs) to come in to this lab and watch over this data. Now, good for them, but... It seems exciting from what I can tell. I don't know the first thing about how the science here actually works, uh, but it seems like on the horizon, maybe unlimited energy at a, a fraction of the cost we're paying now. As is with all these kind of breakthroughs, my first question is always, but when do we actually see this come to pass from a consumer perspective? Haven't you heard for years about like major cancer breakthrough or like, oh, we pretty soon we're going to have this pill that cures Alzheimer's and they just made this new discovery. 
And then I'm like always kind of patiently waiting for like, but when is it actually going to be implemented? You can't wait too patiently. You start working yourself backwards. Like, okay, I'm how old and how many decades and how how long is this going to take? I need that pill. Get, the, get, well, get that pill going. So I read the story. Is, it asks, what are the next steps, which is the most pertinent question for me. Scientists and experts now need to figure out how to produce much more energy from nuclear fusion on a much larger scale. And at the same time, they need to figure out how to eventually reduce the cost of nuclear fusion so that it can be used commercially. To me, I'm going, eh, are we still like a We're decade a away from... It's hard for me to get too excited. And that's if the technology isn't stolen right away. And then the first thing I thought, well, we might end up giving it away. Who knows? Then, then the other thing that I, I was thinking of is... You know, I don't know if you're – whenever I see conspiracy on the Internet, I have to stop and click so the algorithm sending me more and more. And, you know, the guy who – there's always some something going around about a guy who invented a water car and he, he was assassinated by the <laughs> oil industry or something, uh -huh. you know, these secret cabal. So I'm picturing – you know, I mean, if that story was true, how long do you think you know, these scientists had better get? They better get uh, top men, top men, uh, to uh, to secure the, them because uh, fusion would be a big deal if it worked out. And to the extent that the climate change crisis exists, to me, this highlights how it was always going to be innovation, entrepreneurship, and ingenuity that was ultimately going to save the planet and not some big government regulation or policy or attempt at social engineering to get yeah, us out. Yeah, you're right. we got to shut this project down because it's going to ruin <laughs> yeah, all that. have to. I mean, Where's the red tape? Yeah, all the, all the left-wingers that are hoping – I mean, their definition of climate change is need uh, to transform economy slash uh, turn into socialism. This, this entire crisis is uh, based on our need to transform governments. And then all of a sudden somebody comes up with a cure. It's like, uh-oh. This is this is really it's really going to rain on our parade. On a related note, did you see that the AOC climate documentary was a unmitigated flop at the box office, earning just eighty dollars on average per theater? It's called "To the End," the latest political documentary from director Rachel Lears, who previously directed "Knock Down the House," which is something that's on Netflix now that debuted Kirk in two thousand nineteen. Somewhere right now is like, yeah. Well, that's the worst Christmas movie now. <laughs> Take that, AOC. Why do you think it was you such know? a flop, in your well, opinion? Okay, look, it's the time of year, right, where it's not like people are flocking to the theaters right now. I, can I see a climate crisis movie starring that uh, that young congresswoman? You know, uh, I mean, it's just not – first of all, it's not the time for that kind of documentary on policy. Secondly, it's, it's something that obviously is going to be on streaming, you know, tomorrow – so if you're super woke and this is your cup of tea, you're going to wait and watch that on one of your streaming choices. There's just, there was just no way this was going to be a hit, right? It never was going to be. There's 9 billion climate change movies out there. It's not like Dinesh D'Souza's latest where, you know, it's the first of a certain type of movie. This is like one of, I, I mean, they've been making these movies since I was a kid. You know, there's a billion of them out there. Dave Bowes, uh, such a pleasure to host on the Michael Medved Show with you today. Thanks for being here. Thanks to Pride of Hillsdale College, Jeremy Steiner. I don't think that sounded sincere, Jeremy. It did. He sounded rehe rehearsed. No. <laughs> Michael Medved back in the saddle tomorrow. Thanks for listening in this greatest nation on God's green earth.